Lord, it is good to worship you. To think that we will be doing this for eternity in heaven and on the new earth is just such a wonderful, reassuring thought. Now please open our eyes as we look into your word this morning. As we open our Bibles and as we learn more about you and what's in store for us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As I said in the, our Sunday school, um, uh, this current series on you know what the Bible says about how things are going to end, <laughs> the 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 hardest sermon series I've done here was back in 2020, was it? the Kingdom Voting which, you know, laid out what the Bible speaks in the current issues of our time. Never ever thought I'd have to speak on that, but because the world has so pushed itself into the arena of the church, it's like, well, we need to respond to these things. We need to vote accordingly. And whenever you voted, you voted. I mean, that was just hard in terms of just um, the, the warfare that went on. The most challenging by far um, is this current series on how things are end, how things are going to end. Because there is so many different views out there on, on the, and I understand why um, people like the late Dr. Bill Bright, when he studied it, he said, I don't know. <laughs> it's just so, you, you can never really know. Um, before I begin, I also want to, uh, if you're interested in learning more and more and more about what we're studying right now, um, there's a great book, I've had this for years, I've taught it at the previous church, um, it's called The Bible in the Future by Anthony Hokema. Okay, it's from a reform perspective. It answers a lot of just basic questions about the nature of end times and, and heaven and you know, the signs and so all the stuff that we've, we've gone over. That's a great book. Um, I think I might have mentioned this before. If, if not, um, it's, 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 let me say this as well. It's very easy, by the way, to go and to find anything out there in terms of end times if you're going to come at it from, which you should understand by now, is a dispensational perspective. It's, there's, the market in books is flooded with that. It's harder to find something that deals with maybe a, a post-tribulation or an amillennial position. But this book was in the library, A Case for Amillennialism, Understanding the End Times by uh, Kim Riddlebarger. It's been very helpful in my preparation for this as well. Um, and then we'll talk about this uh, as well, and in the, this week and the next week, this is a. You cannot understand really the uh, end times unless you understand the prophet Zechariah. Did you know that? And so, this is a great uh, from a reformed expository commentary by Richard Phillips. I'll quote him today on on Zechariah, particularly Zechariah chapters twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. So it's a great book. Now you can find plenty of of books on Amazon from uh, the opposite perspective, which would be a, a, a dispensational perspective um, on Amazon as well. But, um, yeah. But I'm going to this morning invite you into my world <laughs> in a sermon preparation on how frustratingly uh, difficult this is. And we're going to begin by talking about something that you think, well, this is a simple question, right? And it's not. It's really at the heart of what we're dealing with. And it's this question right here. Who is Israel? 
Okay, I'm going to put these verses up here. Some of you are smiling. Um, after wrestling with God, and who was that who wrestled with God? Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, he was given a new name. Remember this right here? He said, your name should no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Okay? Thus, at that particular point in time, the literal nation of Israel. When I say nation, I mean physical, ethnic Israel, okay, the physical descendants. So all throughout the Old Testament, Israel was a people and a nation. But Israel as a nation, it changed in the New Testament, didn't it? If you didn't know that, look at this right here. Watch this. For they, this is Apostle Paul speaking, for they are all, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So what does that mean? Just because you're a physical descendant of, of Abraham doesn't mean you're good with God. It doesn't mean you get to go to heaven, which is what they were mistakenly thinking. Just because you were circumcised, because you follow his laws, that, that doesn't count. It's all by faith, is what he's going to say here. He says, so nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. It was through the faith Abraham had that God would provide a son, Isaac. Okay, that's the true Israel. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So if you go to literally Jerusalem or Israel today and you see the actual descendants in Jews, unless they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they're just national Israel. They're, they're Jews or Israelites, but they are not the, what we'll discover is the Israel of God, the true Israel. You follow me so far? Yes. Okay. So, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, okay? So you're going to see that there's a physical Israel and there's a spiritual Israel, all right? Now, it says, just like Abraham was a man of faith, the true Israel are the people of faith in a promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay? There is Paul said in Galatians, the Israel of God. See that? For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. So in other words, if you are circumcised, and that was the, the sign of being a true Israelite, okay, that doesn't mean anything, Paul's saying. And if you're not circumcised, it doesn't mean anything but a new creation. And how do you become a new creation? By faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you are place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are given God's nature and you are a new creation. Now, and those who will walk by this rule, by faith, meaning that rule of faith, peace and mercy be upon them and upon what? The Israel of God. So again, there's a national Israel, ethnic, literal, physical people, but there's an Israel of God the people of, that are in heaven, believers. That's why Jew and Gentile, there's no difference there. And a Gentile is now grafted in or is part of the faith, and they are considered the Israel of God. You guys got that? Everyone, I'm somewhat familiar with that. If not, that's, that's fine. But as it's, it's, out, it's great. This is where it gets a little sticky now when it comes to studying the future, because what does it say right here? Because Paul is writing, he says, For I do not want you brethren, and brethren referring to who? Believers, which would be true Israel, the Israel of God, okay? 
to be uninformed of this mystery. So this is something we didn't know about, and now it's being revealed. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. Now what Israel is he talking about there? National Israel, okay? Okay? Because what's the true Israel? Spiritual Israel, okay? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now obviously the Gentiles when they come in, they believe when that number reaches its whatever number that is, then all Israel will be saved. Just as written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now there's a hardiness going on in Israel, okay? But he also talks about, and hints at a future uh, dealing with Israel when he's going to take away what's in your sins. And I'll explain that in a moment here. But this wonderful truth it makes it incredibly difficult to interpret apocalyptic or end time verses. And it's helped create various views on how what's called eschatology, how it's going to play out. Okay? Does that make sense so far? Now, let's talk about some of these different views. And with my frustration, and perhaps you'll understand what we're dealing with. This is what has been the historic position of the church from the very beginning up until the 300, 400 AD. It's what's called historic premillennialism. In other words, obviously, Jesus came to die. We can see that. And then we are living in this time right here, a, the church age, which is the time we are in now, the age of the church. The church was born physically when? New Testament Christ. Okay, that was the mystery that was revealed, Jew and Gentile in one body called the church. Okay? They then believed in what is called a great tribulation. These are things that we've been discussing, the Matthew 24, uh, the, the signs and so on and whatnot. And then, of course, we believe that Jesus is going to come again, second coming, and then there's a great battle that takes place. That was, do you know where the battle of Armageddon got its name? Yeah, but it's, it's Revelation called this the great battle, named it Armageddon, okay? So he comes again, and so notice that there's not a rapture here, okay? There's not, there's not a secret rapture of the church is taken up. Then they believe in a, thousand, a literal thousand-year reign, okay? Then there's the great white throne judgment, and the new heavens and new earth come here, and, and after Satan is destroyed and all that, then we enter into an eternal state. Now, why did the church think that? Well, because... It was the church, early church father in the 300-something called Arrhenius taught that. Arrhenius was the disciple of who? Do you remember this? I mentioned this before. Polycarp. You know who Polycarp was? Well, he was a martyr, but he pastored the church in Ephesus that is written in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He was that pastor, we believe. Guess who discipled Polycarp? The Apostle John. Okay, and who got the revelation from Jesus? You shouldn't only answer this one. John. And so eyewitness testimony was passed on for all those years, okay? And that's been that's what is called historic premillennialism, okay? There are a lot of people that still believe that, and it's not much different other than this part right here than say post tribulation or amillennialism, okay? 
Now, this is what is popularized by Augustine in the 300-400 AD. You have Jesus, same thing. We have the church age, but now we are in the millennial age. There is no literal thousand-year reign, but it's just not defined as that specific number. We're in it, generally speaking. The, the, The thousand years is a figurative number. There's a coming of Jesus, okay, uh, and then you'd have the judgment. And you would, I think they combined the separation of the sheep and goats and the great white throne, all that right then there, and you go immediately into the eternal state. Okay? All right? Then there is, in history, post-millennialism. Okay? You see the difference here is that Jesus, this is popular in the 17th century, Jesus came, we are in the church age, then the church age, things get better and better and better and ushers in the millennium. Okay? So the all-millennial and post-millennial people are, there's, there's really not much difference other than the fact that they don't believe, ominous, that things are going to get better. <laughs> that the church, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to make things better and the world's going to get better and, and we're going to, and then at the end of that time, Jesus Christ comes, there's the judgment and then the eternal state. Okay? Not much difference, though, between all-millennial and post-millennialism. Okay? You guys got that? Because I know some of you wanted to get, again, all different views and so on. And then the most recent view is, of course, this right here. And you can see it's massively different than the other views. Of course, this is what's most popular because it's, it, it talks about this right here, rapture. Jesus, church age, everything is the same. And then when the church is taken out, there's all this stuff right here. The seven-year period. He comes, Battle of Armageddon. A millennial reign, same thing here as historic criminalism, except this is added, and we, this is sort of taken out in a sense. Then the eternal state. But this is the most popular. You can find anything. You go to Amazon, put up end times, this is what's going to come up. It's the whole Left Behind series, okay? And um, now I want to take you through, go back now to here. Historic I should have put this up on the screen, I didn't. You, if you want to know more, you can write these down right now. In terms of interpreting eschatology, okay, historic premillennialists take a literal interpretation of Scripture and a figurative interpretation of Scripture. Okay? They combine both. Literal, because they believe what? Revelation 20 mentions this, it's in the Bible, there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign. Okay? Figurative in the sense that they're able to say that, well, you know, is there, they're able to say that some of the things they're talking about because it's apocalyptic literature at the end times, you know, it's not actually going to happen to that detail. They believe that, that true Israel is the church. Okay? The true Israel is the church. And this is important, this next point, that New Testament prophecy interprets Old Testament prophecy. Okay? And I'll explain that when I get to dispensational premillennialism. Okay? So we're going to reinterpret the Old Testament through the New Testament. Okay? So it's literal and figurative interpretation of eschatology. The true Israel is a church, and New Testament prophecy interprets Old Testament prophecy. When you get to amillennialism, they primarily... When studying end times, go with a figurative interpretation of eschatology. Okay? 
It's figurative. It's not literal, which is why they don't believe in a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Even though it's plainly mentioned, they applied figures and symbols to it and say that it, there is no thousand-year reign. They believe that true Israel is the church. And again, New Testament prophecy interprets Old Testament prophecy. You with me so far? Are you confused yet? Are you confused? Okay, some of you are. Yeah, see what I'm dealing with? Okay, postmillennialism, again, similar to amillennialism, figurative interpretation of eschatology, the true Israel is the church, and again, the New Testament prophecy interprets the Old Testament prophecy. Okay? When you get to dispensational premillennialism, here's where things radically change. Um, it is primarily, and all these are not, they're not 100% literal or figurative or whatever, but it's primarily literal interpretation of eschatology. They take those verses literal, okay? Israel and the church are separate. They make a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. And Old Testament prophecy still interprets New Testament prophecy, which is why they believe in Daniel 9.27 and it's Daniel's 70th week and all of that. Okay? See, it's right here. And you don't see it in any of these other ones for the most part. They're going to reinterpret the old with the new. Here, again, it's the old is, is still reinterpreting the new. Basically what that means is that the promises spoken to Israel, the things that are spoken to national Israel, the literal people of Israel, are going to be fulfilled to them and them only in the future. Does that make sense? You guys follow me so far? Now, let me talk about my struggles. Okay? I didn't put that up there, did I? So let's put up there, my struggles. Anyways, this is one of the reasons I chose to begin this study of the end times with Matthew 24, is that all of those positions agree that there's going to be signs before his second coming of Jesus Christ and an actual bodily and glorious return of Jesus Christ. So it's, everyone agrees he's coming again and there's going to be signs and so on. So it's really kind of I'm looking right down the middle here. That's where we're going. I'm not going to go to the left. Let's say that's dispensation over the right to all millennial and so on. Okay? But this is just what the text says, both in the Old and New Testament. Um, but no matter how I try to avoid stepping on anyone's toes, there have been some toes that I would step on just because I preached on Matthew 24. Because I had to choose to interpret and preach on Matthew 24 based on either what is called a preterist or futurist position. You ever heard of that phrase before? Preterist or futurist? Okay. What do I mean by that, and what, why is that an issue? Well, this is taken from um, this book, Kim Riddlebarger, in a case for omelism, and he helps describe and define what they are. And so I, the preterist in understanding of biblical prophecy sees Christ's predictions in Matthew 24 as referring to the Romans' army destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in A.D. 70. And Preterists argue that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation before A.D. 70, 
and that it describes Nero Caesar's persecution of the church. This means that virtually all the Bible's teaching about future things was fulfilled within the lifetime of Christ's disciples. Okay? And they say that based upon a literal interpretation and context in this verse right here. Which you can see where they would get that position, right? Truly I say to you, this generation, and who was Jesus speaking to at the time? The apostles and disciples in in that church, in that generation roughly 30, 40 years, they will not pass away until all these things take place. So all those signs that we've talked about so far, no one's going to die, pass away, this generation, until these things take place. Now, as is often the case with preterism, you have degrees of the preterist position. I think I put this up here. Yeah, no. Full preterists, if you are a full preterist, you're going to contend that Christ's second coming occurred in A.D. 70, along with the resurrection and the final judgment. And I'm quoting this book here, okay? That's what's called full preterism. Partial preterists argue that the events of A.D. 70 fulfill the prophecies of Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation, but the general resurrection and the final judgment have not yet occurred. Donnie, you and I were talking about this. Um, he and I could be, I would have no problem being really a, a partial preterist. Yeah, a lot of those things happened during that time. Okay? Uh, R.C. Sproul, I believe, was a, a, a partial preterist. Okay? Now, the opposite of preterism is what is called futurism. Futurist is one who centers his theological beliefs that most of the prophecies are to have a literal fulfillment in the future. And we naturally read the Bible that way. Okay? And as with preterism, there are two types of futurism. There's an extreme futurism and moderate futurism. Again, this is all taken from this book here. Uh, one of the, George Ladd, a well-known pastor and theologian, wrote this. says, the extreme view is known as dispensationalism that most prophecies concerning Israel have a literal fulfillment in the future after the church has been taken out of the world. That's dispensational premillism, okay? A moderate futurist view different, differs at several points. It finds no reason to distinguish sharply between Israel and the church. That's why there are a number of Reformed theologians that are historic premillennialists, okay? You with me so far? So, yeah, how have I preached Matthew 24 to you then? Has I preached that things have already happened or that they're going to happen in the future? Matthew 24, all those signs, what did I say? Have they already happened or are they going to happen in the future? What do you think? Already happened. Anyone disagree with that? Raise your hand. Yeah. I preach that they have, have, have already, but they are mostly going to happen in the future. Has he come again? No. Has the signs in the heaven, the sun changed, you know, all that, has that already happened? No. No. Okay? Do you see how complex and, and confusing this is? Okay. I think it's both. I think that they have happened. Because what, he, what was he talking about? 
to that, to that, he's going to destroy what the temple. And did that happen? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and the Christians, people fled, okay, and, and all that, okay. But as he says, and he is a, this guy and others, again, he's a Reformed theologian, and this guy, I think, says the same thing, Richard Phillips, is that it's what is called prophetic perspective, or a double meaning. It means it can happen here, but there's also the, the option for a future happening. So there'll be more signs and wonders. And so clearly, did the sun turn red? Were the stars falling from the sky? Has that stuff happened yet? Has Jesus coming in the day of judgment? No, that stuff is still future. Okay? So I'm trying to, in a sense, preach on this, not stepping on your toes, but keep it down the middle, okay, and give you a balanced approach to it. Not saying that they've already happened, which a lot of people say that's just not right. Not saying it's all future either, that none of the events ever happen. You can't say that either. I mean, they have to an extent, okay? And there's not much difference, by the way, between a moderate futurist and a partial preterist in this position, okay? Now, I'm going to get back to the difference in the eschatological, the, the, the positions that we've been through, the historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. I am tired of saying millennialism already. Now, the obvious difference lies in what? Israel and the church. Are they the same or are they different? And also the difference between the, the view of the the millennial reign, millennial view. Now, generally speaking, dispensational eschatology primarily applies a literal interpretation of apocalyptic literature. Do you understand when I say apocalyptic literature? You know what that means? Daniel, when he talks about the end times. Revelation, okay, even Matthew 24, because there's somewhat apocalyptic literature, okay? Ezekiel, sections of that, and Isaiah and Zechariah and so on. When you take a literal interpretation, you believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, based on Revelation 20. Generally speaking, covenant or reformed eschatology primarily embraces a what? Figurative interpretation of apocalyptic literature, which is why they don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign. You with me so far? Now, get your Bibles out. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12. I'm going to show you how frustrating this is. Any of these books, I would recommend to you, if you want to study more in depth, buy them. They're very good and inform you of this. And you can find um, any number of decent dispensational eschatology books. They're just, they're a dime a dozen. They're out there. It's so much easier to find than from a covenant or reform perspective. In Zechariah chapter 12, it's the second to last book, I think, of the Bible. Okay, Malachi is the last. It's a wonderful book that talks about uh, the future from Zechariah's time on, and it, with accurate detail, all the way up to chapters 12 through 14, which talk about the last days. Okay, you'll see in that day. Now, let me give you an example of how hard this is to understand, thus teach. You guys ready? It says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. 
can't put that verse up there, yeah. Thus declares the Lord who stretches up the heavens. And I thought that was neat because do you remember my study on Genesis and creation? What did God do when he created the heavens and the earth? He had the water and he what? Look at me. What did he do? He separated the waters and did this. And he thus is stretching and creating what? The heavens. That's what he did. Okay? He lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Verse 2, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day, they will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Now, I know that you understand that completely. I don't need to develop that or explain that to you because it all makes sense, right? No, it does not, obviously. No. What we're going to do is I'm going to um, quote from you from John MacArthur. He's a dispensational theologian, and he interprets Zechariah 12, which is an Old Testament book. And again, it's crucial to understanding the end times this way. This is I'm going to quote to you, read how he interprets it, and it makes sense. He says, 16 times in these three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, is the phrase, in that day. That leads us to believe what? It's a pretty dominant theme, isn't it? In that day. If it's going to be repeated 16 times, in that day. So we know one thing for sure. This whole section, chapters 12, 13, and 14, is about that day. And there's no question about that. And what day is it? The day of the Lord. In fact, if you look in, in your Bibles, if you get a little summary of that chapter 14, it'll say the day of the Lord in your Bible. So he says that 12, 13, and 14 are all related, and it's talking about in that day referring to the day of the Lord. That's basic exegesis. It's in, uh, studying a passage within context. And you take a literal interpretation of it. It's how we preach primarily from the Bible to stick to the truth and so on. And it's the easiest way to explain a, a text, okay? He says, the whole picture focuses on the apocalyptic day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, as I've been saying to you, is referring to what event? His second coming. Okay, an event surrounding that. That's the day of the Lord. Okay? And that's not for debate. Everybody knows that, whether, whatever side you're on. When history resolves into the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That is a literal Within context, interpretation of those five verses from Zechariah. Does that make sense? So that that day is referring to the day of the Lord. Okay? Now, this guy, and again, I recommend this book as well. Um, he's a Reformed theologian. I think he's an amillennial in his position. And you should understand what that means now. He wrote in this commentary on Zechariah 12 this. The general statement we can make about the day of the Lord is that it refers to the coming of God's judging and saving on the earth. Okay, that's a general statement. Everyone would agree with that, right? Such a day occurs at, watch this now, at various times in redemptive history. 
MacArthur said that day refers to the day the Lord refers to what? His second coming. What's he saying? It's happening all the time. Now you understand what I'm dealing with? You see that? So, these prophecies refer to the people of God generally. You see that? Who in Zechariah's day were located in Jerusalem, but who now are found where? In the church. It's like you're waking up now from this. I was like, I gotta do something to keep you guys awake because this is a little complex, okay? So even though God is speaking to who in Zechariah chapter 12? Who is he speaking to at that time in history? The, Jews, the, the nation of Israel, which would include probably the true Israel as well, a mixture of unbelievers and believers, right? And he's speaking to the prophet Zechariah in that the church doesn't even exist at this point in history. Again, he concludes that those prophecies are speaking to the church. So it's be speaking to who then? Which would be who? Us. Okay? Does that make sense to you? It doesn't really, does it? But you see what he's doing? He's taking the New Testament and reinterpreting the Old Testament. Okay? So in other words, I'm going to quote another guy here that he quotes in this book. He quotes H.C. Leupold, an Old Testament scholar in his commentary on Zechariah. He says, the claims made for Jerusalem's future. Did I put this up here or not? No. The claims made for Jerusalem's future find their ultimate fulfillment in the true Zion of God, his church. The whole passage speaks of God's sovereign care and protection of the church of the Old and New Testament through the ages. So basically, they're using a figurative interpretive method to interpret Zechariah 12, 1 through 5. The problem is, is that that can lead to difficulties. Because is it easier to interpret something literally or figuratively? Literally, it's easier to do that because I stick within the rules of, eschatology, of, of interpretation, right? Context, words have meanings and, and so on. I can understand what, what this phrase means by researching it and so on and so forth. Once you go outside of that and bring in our own figurative interpretation of it, you can get into trouble. For example, Martin Luther discovered this problem for himself in writing his commentary on Zechariah chapter 14. He wanted to approach the 14th chapter of Zechariah, which deals with the day of the Lord, the second coming, in a figurative or symbolic way. It's, just, it's, it's funny, but I understand exactly what he's meaning here. I want you to listen to what he confessed after writing about this particular chapter. This is what he said in his commentary on Zechariah. <laughs> in this chapter, I surrender. I am not certain of what the prophet speaks. <laughs> okay? So I'm trying to get you to sympathize with me as I'm trying to sit there and teach you something that, that's sorted down the middle, but give you the, what the Bible says about this. Okay? In other words, what he's saying here is approaching this passage from a figurative or symbolic angle, Luther could not 
could make really no convincing sense out of it. He went on and expounding the chapter, but didn't think it could have any reference to the end times. And by the way, that was in a, a, a sermon by John MacArthur. It's also written, this, that quote and everything, in this book too. So it's just common knowledge that it's, it's very difficult to interpret a passage figuratively, which is to an extent what you have to do sometimes when you're dealing with the end times or apocalyptic literature. It's very, very challenging. Um, what he said was that, that that referred to the period of destruction of Jerusalem, of course, in A.D. 70. He says all the language was somehow symbolically fulfilled around 70 A.D. And so me speaking now, he says this is where I found myself in preparing this sermon. Because I'm talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ from Matthew 24, right? He has appeared in a darkened sky in all his glory. Does the Bible speak on anything else surrounding his second coming? It does. Specifically in Zechariah, chapters 12 through 14 deal with the day of the Lord. But how do I present it to you then? If I want to give you what the Bible says about his second coming, I've got to preach on Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. Okay? How do I interpret it then? Because according to the reform position, what does chapter 12 deal with? Not the second coming, right? It's not the day of the Lord. It's just the church in general. And he quotes all different historical stories of when the church has been persecuted. So then that makes it, I can't preach on that then. Now if I look at it from a dispensational perspective and say within the context of everything, sure it deals with the end times. And I can preach on that. So what do I do? You follow me? Okay. So in other words, do I interpret these chapters from a dispensational perspective, a little interpretation, making a distinction between Israel and the church? And by the way, I don't think there's a distinction between Israel and the church. It's very clear, which is what we started off with. Or do I interpret these chapters from a covenant perspective? A figurative interpretation making no distinction between Israel and the church. And whenever I see the word Israel, I substitute the word church. So go to, back to uh, Zechariah 12. Listen to this now. You ready? The burden of the word of the Lord concerning the church. Thus declares the Lord who stretched up the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make the church a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around, and when the siege is against the church, it will also be against the church. Because Israel and Judah are the same thing. It will come out in that day that I will make the church a heavy stone for all the peoples, all who will lift it up. You get the point I'm making here, right? Does that make it harder to understand and interpret it? Yes, it does. Now, you understand why this is so challenging for me to present this to you guys? Try to give you a biblical perspective when they have all these different positions. Okay? Now, what I found so helpful as I close here is, again, this guy in this book. He understands my dilemma because he writes, they put this up here, says, how should we understand the prophecies of Zechariah chapters 12 through 14 are being fulfilled? How are they being fulfilled? Because every theologian, whether you're on this side or that side, reformed or dispensational, 
The first view, associated with what he calls post-millennial eschatology, argues that Israel and Jerusalem in the Old Testament correspond to the Christian church in the New Testament. You got that? We just went over that. Christians are the true Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. Many of the prophecies in Zechariah regarding Jerusalem seem to be fulfilled in the church. He writes this, the danger in this interpretive method is these specific prophecies get spiritualized away into vague principles. Secondly, we take other Old Testament prophecies literally. Why not these? In other words, there's an inconsistent exegesis. You follow me so far? Now, the premillennialists are right in demanding that these chapters point to actual events that will happen in the future. And a little interpretation is necessary in some of these prophecies. But how do you know? Where do you apply them? Where do you not apply them? Now he goes on, Phillips, and argues for an amillennial position that he says combines both an interpretive methods. In other words, it's literal and figurative. And he says that Zechariah 14 does not there we go. Just bring us general principles about life in this world. Nor does it bring to us a thousand-year political reign of Jesus Christ centered on the earthly Jerusalem. So the first part here, this first part of the sentence, that's a reform position. This is more of a dispensational position about the a thousand-year political reign. He says, instead, it celebrates the end of all things at the second coming of Jesus. In other words, he's going to combine both a literal and a figurative interpretive scheme. Does that make sense? Stay with me. I know you're like, this is probably too much information. It's overcast for a while now. We're all just kind of tired and we're sleeping in because it's like five or six. It's still dark. We're not used to that. Do you need to stand because we are almost done? Okay. So, there we go. I felt trapped in preparing these sermons. Do I use a figurative interpretive model or literal? So to put it another way, do I make a distinction between Israel and the church? If I come from a dispensational perspective, in Zechariah 12 through 14, that God is speaking to Israel, national Israel. But he is now working through the church. After the rapture of the church, God once again resumes his dealings with Israel. And Zechariah 12 through 14 now applies to the national Israel as it is written literally in the text. But the problem for me is I don't make the distinction between Israel and the church. The New Testament, I think, is clear on that. There's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. Again, true Israel is not one by birth and nationality, but one by faith, like Abraham. If I don't make a distinction between Israel and the church, how do I interpret those passages then? I'm forced to use what? A figurative interpretation model. Okay? It's figurative. So what did I do? Well, it was then that I thought of a third option, which isn't a new thought, by the way. What if I just combine both a literal and a figurative interpretive approach? It's not either or, but it's both. Now, what I mean by that, and what does that look like? Because I think it gives us the best understanding that I can present to you in an understandable way what the end times, how it's all going to play out. So up to the second coming of, of Jesus Christ, this is what I think the Bible says, and I'm holding this very loosely. This, is, this first statement is, is, everyone agrees with this, we're in the church age, the age of the church. 
That's where we are. We, the church, and national physical Israel will enter a time of tribulation that we are to endure. Okay? Both the church and the nation of Israel will be persecuted. God protects his people, and who are his people? The church of God. Uh huh. And God begins to cleanse national Israel through this persecution. That's what chapters 12, 13, and 14 refer to in Zechariah and in other parts of the Old and New Testament. During this time, this is important, many, but not all Jews, are going to begin the process to believe. Because that's what the New Testament says. But they're not full believers yet, because God is preparing their hearts to receive who when he comes again? Christ. The Messiah that they once rejected. Now, there's a small remnant that does come to full belief in Jesus as their Messiah's Savior. And while Jerusalem is under siege, there's a war, there, there's a certain defeat. That's the, the actual city. The sign of the Son of Man appears in this darkened sky. And why does Jerusalem, near the Mount of Olives, have to be under attack? And why does he come back right there at that particular place? You any idea? He said, where I leave, I will come back to the same place. Okay? And so in his sovereignty, he's bringing these nations around this city of Jerusalem, the national physical city, where there are Israelites and Jews and so on. And they're, they're, the scriptures say they're near defeat. He appears. We, the church, the believers, the true Israel, what happens to us at that time? You should know this. This is good news. We're going to cut up. We're going to meet him in the air and we'll return with him. Okay? And this is what, again, this is maybe new to you, but this is what the text says in the Old Testament. Um, the national Israel then begins to mourn for their Messiah. They realize that they made a mistake. And God begins to pour his spirit on those destined to believe. Now, when Jesus' foot touches the Mount of Olives, I touched on this a little bit earlier, the many places in the Old Testament says that there's going to be a great earthquake at the Mount of Olives, and he's going to reshape the land, creating a valley. That valley allows Israel to escape complete destruction of the armies of her enemies. This is what he talks about in this book here. Ralph did God create a way out for people as a complete nation to escape their armies. The, spread the sea, the Red Sea, all of that. Okay? And he references that in this book from a Reformed perspective. Okay? And they go, and then that valley is created. The, Joel and, and Zechariah talk about that being a valley of decision. You familiar with that phrase? The decision's already been made. Man doesn't make the decision. It's no longer the day of man, it's the day of the Lord. It's what Matthew 25, I think it's everyone talks about the judgment of the sheep and goats, the separation of all that, okay? And so this is not, that is not necessarily a dispensational perspective. It is, but it's also included here in a reform perspective as well. 
at the same time, Jesus defeats his enemies, and his enemies are an unbelieving world full of godless nations. In doing so, he saves the people called Israel in the city called Jerusalem. Now, not everyone who is there is a believer in him, but he saves that city. He saved those people. And the value created at his second coming becomes a vibe decision. It is here the judgment of the sheep and goats takes place. And I hold that, all of that, as I understand the scriptures, like I said in the very beginning of this sermon series in the end times, how do I hold it? Loosely. Okay. I will explain to you what Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 say, where I got this from. Okay. And I got this from a dispensational and a reformed theologians as they study these. Okay? So I want you to see, I'm not trying to take any one position, I'm trying to cut through it all and get to what the Bible says, but there are so, it is so difficult to do, it's, it's really, it's impossible. Okay? So, for example, when I went through all those signs, okay, for me to explain to you the, um, those signs in a figurative way, I mean, when I tried to explain to you from a covenant perspective, Matthew 24, do you remember that? Talk about stuff being fulfilled in 70 AD and all of that. It was new to most everybody here, you told me. I heard from a lot of people. It's just not out there as much because it's been around for a long time. What has been out there is the dispensational position. Of you're not going to go through this and the rapture and all that and so on and so forth. Okay? So when you sit there and, and, and take that and study that, when I talked about the signs, for example, I decided I'll just go with a little bit of, a, of more of a literal approach because it makes it easier to understand and preach on. Do I believe that word for word, all of those signs and the earthquakes and the deaths and the seas and the, the burn and the boils and the, all of that, it's going to happen like it exactly says? No, I do not. Down the middle, I can say that it is going to be more intense signs than it says, because that's what the text says. There's going to be birth pains, and it's going to get increasingly worse, okay? I still find both positions say that there is going to be this signs in the sky. The stars are going to fall, all of that. They all agree on that. It can be kind of scary when you look at that, especially when you talk about it. But, but by choosing to do it literal, you may think that I'm siding with a dispensational perspective. I am not. I'm simply trying to get, tell you what the text says. Now, I don't normally do this, but do you have any questions? <laughs> what are the two ways to interpret the end times or apocalyptic literature? Literal or figurative, okay, and that's the challenge. Either you're going to say that there's no difference between Israel and the church, or a, there is a separation. Does that make sense? Do you understand why most pastors don't even go over this then? <laughs> and I've talked to, to Don and Ron and, and Frank about this, and the re, the, we've looked for John Eggerdahl's book. I still haven't gotten it yet, by the way. Okay, yeah, because I want to use that. Uh, we talked about that the last couple of weeks, waiting for that, and so we couldn't find it anywhere, and looked all, talked to Roger and Ryan and everything, and so on and so forth. Um, you have a copy? Well, you can drop it by my house today, then. 
I'm joking. I can come get it. So, so I'm trying to give you an overall picture of, of sort of what, but kind of what both what the dominant themes are, and so you can make up your own mind and where you lie and so on and so forth. But the application point is really just kind of simple here when it comes to this. And that's just, do you understand why I said you got to hold it loosely? Okay? You hold it loosely. I don't want to go through, if I have to, all those bad things that we talked about. Does anybody? I don't have to endure that. I say, Lord, just take me home <laughs> before I, I do that. But there are some that, that, that will have to go through that. That's just a reality. Okay? But we can all agree he is coming again. It'll be a bodily return. We all agree he's going to come back to the same place. Okay? Whether or not it's going to be, there'll be a war that goes on or not, and so on. And, and like, here's one of the bad things about, you, that's true about if you take a dispensational take on it all, is that you're prone to sensationalism. Okay? And they can then try and sit there, and one author said that the armies that are attacking Israel, it's a combination of a Russian-Arab uh, alliance, and you have, you know, because it's coming from the north and the south and the, the west and the east, and they're all coming after Israel, and they talk about this alliance, and they mention Russia being a great world superpower. We now know they're not. And he talked about Libya and Omar Gaddafi. Guess what? He's gone. So they get off in these wild claims, like, dude, why would you say that? That's the danger in taking something too literal. But you should have seen the looks in your faces when I showed you that that passage in Zechariah 12 is not talking about Israel, it's talking about the church. A lot of you are like completely lost. We don't think to interpret it that way, do we? Now you understand my pain. All right? Okay? So, that being said, Hold on to it loosely. Let me pray, and you can go on and wake up. All right? Lord, thank you for this time. Bless the rest of our day as we worship you on your day. In Jesus' name, amen.